Hey, everybody, it's Joe Trippy, and welcome back to That Trippy Show. Before we hit the Thanksgiving break, Alex and I thought we all could use some advice, not cooking tips for how to deal with that crazy aunt or uncle at the dinner table, but how are we supposed to process all of what's going on? We're obviously the wrong people to be giving anyone advice. We have a political podcast, but that's why our friend Dave Pell is joining us. Dave's the author of the Next Draft newsletter, and his book, Please Scream Inside Your Heart, is available now. I I had a copy. I've been uh, been d- d- diving into it. It's an amazing read. It's sort of two books in one. Humorous as, as hell through the hell year we had in 2020. And uh, but at the same time, the humor's there. And also, uh, Dave, it's really a look into your relationship with your parents. Uh, that really, really touched me a lot when I read it. So, Dave, uh, welcome and thanks for being with us. Oh, thanks. Thanks so much for having me. You know, you mentioned Thanksgiving. I was thinking the other day, like usually on Thanksgiving, religion and politics are sort of off limits. But this year, like what is on limit? If you talk about the NFL, somebody's going to argue about Aaron Rodgers immunization. If you talk about the weather, now we have Fox weather just launched. So who knows if people are going to agree on the weather anymore? There's almost no topics left. We don't watch the same shows. Um, you know, I'm not sure what anybody's going to talk about except the turkey. Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty fragmented and and polarized and tribal out there. You know, but even the, the title uh, of your book brings back what most of us uh, were feeling for 2020. I mean, uh, uh, what gave you the inspiration to put to 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 write the book? Uh, sure. Yeah. I mean. Really, the inspiration was twofold. One was that I really always wanted to write a book. And uh, I've given my wife a few ideas over the years. And she's said, no, 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 that's not right. Or I'm not the right person. And this one, I woke her up at three in the morning one night and said, how about this? And she said, yeah, that's it. So I started writing. The, The bigger picture is that on one hand, I've been covering the news and opening up 75 news tabs for my newsletter next draft for like a decade. So I've been a news addict since I was a kid, and I'm always out there in that tsunami of news trying to add some context to the chaos. And in 2020, I saw that so many of my friends and acquaintances were actually becoming like me and sharing my addiction, even people who before then hadn't been into the news at all. And so I thought I was sort of in a unique position to try to take what I do on a daily basis and do it for a year and sort of create a time capsule of the year. The bigger reason that I decided to write the book has to do with a conversation I had with my dad um, right before the pandemic quarantine started, at least out where I am in the Bay Area. He had sort of been complaining about Trump and what was going on in America since about 2015. And one day, right before the quarantine started, for about the 50th time, probably in 2020, he said, I don't get it. Why aren't people out in the streets? And I sort of argued, well, I think people take it seriously, but people in my generation in America just don't think what happened to you, and he's a Holocaust survivor, could ever happen here. And he like stopped in his tracks, which is rare, and turned to me and said, you think when I was a kid, we thought it could happen there? And right then I realized, man, this is like a message that I need to get out to people. Um, I need to use a format that's sort of funny and uh, informative and not too heavy. But I want this message from my dad about uh, the messaging that was being used by the Trump administration, our slide in the direction of uh, authoritarianism or autocracy. 
not that he was arguing we're headed for another Holocaust, but he repeatedly said the messaging that Trump was using was something that he really reminded him of his his childhood and pre-World War II Europe. And if I say that, hey, I'm a left wing snowflake, who's going to believe it? But my dad was like major hard ass, uh, fought his way to surviving the Holocaust, only member of his family to survive, probably Republican for most of his life and the least hysterical person who's ever walked this earth. So if he says it, people need to listen. And that's really above and beyond everything else why I decided to write the book. Yeah, look, I I, I I still find it amazing that, you know, first there was the, well, America, there's no way uh, uh, this country would 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 elect Trump president, but it did. Uh, there's no way January 6th could happen in America, but it did. And still the resistance to waking up to the threat that uh, one of how close we came already to the coup and how it's still ongoing now and what that and and and, uh, and what that mean, means and how people like your father recognized it right away i mean people who who who'd seen authoritarianism and suffered under it or 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 fled it um, or survived it uh, and that this country I, I even think up on capitol hill a lot a, a lot of the office holders don't don't see the threat I'm not sure the Justice Department really sees the threat that way. But look, look for for um, those of you who haven't plugged into the next draft newsletter that that Dave puts out every I mean, talk about the news, a news addict, news nerd. I mean, it, every day, every morning I get up and I read that thing and and its take on key stories, Dave, that you put out uh, every day. And it's it, it, that humor that you use or just sort of the snark that pulls it together, that pulls a story and sort of wakes you up to thinking about it a little differently. I think just what's amazing to me about the book is the book does that throughout the whole that whole year, uh, that you're able to capture what you do uh, so well and, and and play out in a year that had to be horrible for all of us. I mean, it was, I, I mean, uh, but there's a, um, how do you see the humor in this stuff? I mean, or, or, for lack of a better way of putting it, you know, where's yeah, that come I mean, from? I mean, that that's probably my, you know, innate superpower, I guess. I can't do much, but I'm pretty good at sort of counterpunching off incoming information. So in next draft, I sort of created a product that reflects my talents as opposed to trying to learn talents that would be marketable in an existing occupation. So, you know, now in you tell me. That's yeah. <laughs> oh, damn, yeah. I should have been doing something I was good at. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, it took me about 30 <laughs> years. So don't feel yeah. bad. Uh, so yeah, that's really one of the reasons why I wanted to write the book because I felt it was easier to take uh, with some humor and with some personal stories, uh, particularly some of those messages we were talking before an academic book on a slide towards authoritarian messaging is a different audience and a different take than what I'm doing. I'm trying to get those messages across. I want you to get the medicine, but I'm giving you about 90% sugar to get it down. Um, so the, yeah, the humor part is just, is just luck mostly, you know, I just happen to see the funny side of things that just happens to be my thing. Um, it was interesting in 2020 how that sort of became a much more important part of my brand. It was a fun part of my newsletter before 2020. But once everybody was locked at home in quarantine and really pretty scared and uncomfortable and 
alienated and depressed and angry about the politics and everything seemed to be down to one story. You know, we got sports taken away. We got movies taken away. It was just us, Trump and a disease or maybe us and two diseases in that case. And people were bummed. So I felt like if I can make people feel a little better or have a laugh here and there uh, during the course of their afternoon, then that's a benefit that I can play, a small benefit I can play. I did think it was interesting to watch during 2020 how many things, um, you know, we live in separate media universes. That's not a big surprise. But even in terms of what we find funny and what we find serious, you know, there were so many moments that I reflect on on my book where, you know, liberals were laughing like crazy at how ridiculous it all was. Uh, Coronavirus hearings where, you know, we ponder about the idea of putting disinfectant on the inside of our bodies. Uh, Press conferences at the Four Season Landscaping Company. You know, um, just one thing after another that was like laughable to us. But at the same time, Sarah Cooper is probably the best example, right? She made a, she burst onto the comedy scene after years of working at it by doing what? Just mouthing Trump's words. She didn't even change a single sound about them. So the very stuff that we were cracking up about, um, the other media universe not only took seriously, but many of them to this day take seriously enough to risk their lives on. You know, you still have people that are taking coronavirus hearings we laughed about and they're on their deathbed in hospitals insisting that it's a hoax and it's a democratic plot and they're not going to get vaccinated so it was interesting to me how that humor both was a relief that we needed but there's also some danger um in that humor because it distracts us from the fact that there's an undercurrent of this and in this case a huge undercurrent that's about 70 million Americans that don't find this funny at all. Well, Dave, uh, and I'll, I'll get, we'll get back to kind of the, the fragmentation of the news in a minute. But one thing for our listeners, and you really should check out Next Draft, you package kind of the parts of the news that I, I think we all used to see, but we don't really see anymore because we're so hyper-focused on Trump, COVID, whatever the political stuff is. I mean, I got a kick out of, I think it was today where, you know, in the same bullets you had talking about the latest in Syria, you had the Gosar stuff, but then you had a story about a guy getting kicked out of a all-you-can-eat barbecue for eating too much. And that kind of took me back to like stumble upon in the old days of the internet where you could still go find stuff outside of your silo. And I, I think it's a really neat way to keep people from getting so narrowly into those silos that all you see is the latest on Fox, the latest on Trump, whatever it is. Yeah, I mean, that's what I really like to do is mix it up and sort of, I think of Next Draft as a modern day column. So it's like if the column were invented as a forum today, I think it would be sort of like this. I patterned myself a little bit after Herb Cain, who was a a San Francisco Chronicle columnist who sort of pioneered something called three dot journalism, where you just have a couple blurbs about one topic and then you'd see three dots and he'd have a totally different topic. And uh, Joe might be old enough to remember eight is enough. The show eight is enough. Yeah. The dad on that show was named Dick Bradford, and he was like a local columnist. And one day he'd write about some big political issue, and the next day he'd write about that he was upset that his son Tommy got a girl pregnant in high school or something. And I, when I was a kid, I just always thought, that's what I want to do. I want to just wake up in the morning and write about whatever. Um, and in this case, I'm taking an incoming signal from the internet about what that stuff is. But I do find that that's the way people consume information now when you're on twitter it's the same thing it's a lot of uh 
very serious stuff mixed with a lot of totally absurd things. You know, I think people are pretty used to having data come in. The, the thing that was so unusual about 2020 and I'm why I'm so glad it's over is that, you know, there were so few stories really, except for about one person. Everybody in the media sort of was on the Trump beat. You know, I, the example I always use is Carol Lennig, who has done such amazing reporting for the Washington Post and in book form about the Secret Service. But for most of the Trump era, she was on Trump like everybody else. And I got so many emails. By far, my biggest complaint during uh, the Trump era was, oh, you just keep writing about Trump. Why don't you ever link to non-political stories like you used to? And I'm like, find me the story. You know, I'm going to 75 sites and I'm finding about 99% of the stories are about Trump. So if you can find me the stories, believe me, I'm dying for them. And, you know, whereas I think the Trump era sort of created a whole slew of media stars, uh, you know, from Pod Saves America to uh, Preet Bharara and on down the line, people who helped us get through it, you know, and helped us understand it. But it was great for many parts of the media. It was actually a major bummer for my part of the media because, um, next draft was never particularly political before, uh, 2016. And I felt like there was enough. I used to be a political blogger. I felt there was enough, uh, political news out there on the internet, but everything became political in 2020 and everything became political about one guy. So I sort of felt locked into that cycle. And then when I started writing my book, I was writing about August in the morning and writing about April, 2020 in the afternoon. So I was like doing double Trump. So. I'm definitely oh doubly glad the year is over. <laughs> well, one of the things you hit in the book is is the evolution evolution of technology, and 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 uh, I'm with you on this because you talk about how we set out to build these networks for one reason, and they evolved into basically the opposite of what we all tried to do. I mean, I I remember how hopeful I was when I started the Dean campaign, thinking that this was going to be like a way to really empower people to, do, to, 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 to really connect and communicate, actually a, to build a commons where we could talk to each other. And it's, it's totally uh, turned the other way. And could you get into that a little bit? Because I was really fascinated that you thought the same, or that you and I had sort of had the same kind of views about on this. Yeah. So, you know, right before the internet really took off, um, I'm a Bay area native, but I was living in New York and I was, um, uh, working at a high school called Prospect Heights High School, sort of a bottom five high school metal detectors. Uh, you know, kids had it pretty rough. Um, and I was teaching African-American literature in this classroom where I was the only white guy. And I actually started the course and bought the books. They didn't have that class at this school at that time. And um, we were reading this book called Native Son by Richard Wright. And there was this part of the book where this main character sort of on the run. And I asked the class to say, hey, would you turn him in? You know, and, and the guy was accused of murder at the time. And like a third of the class said, hey, uh, we'd never turn him in because the justice system is not fair to African-Americans. About a third of the class said we'd turn him in, but you know, no matter what, murder is wrong and somebody has to pay the price for that. And then a third of the class said, yes, we turn him in, but not because of any of those moral reasons, just because we'd be afraid if he's on the street, we might be his next victim. And on that day, I had this student in my class who was a white student from an AP class in LA. And after the class, she was the niece of, a student, of another teacher. And after the class, she came up to me and says, wow, we just finished reading Native Son in my class. And none of the topics that you talked about in this class ever came up. 
And if you would ask that question, would we turn the main character bigger in at that point, everybody in my class would have laughed and thought you were joking because of course we would. I learned so much about this book that I didn't know hearing from people from another culture, you know, and this was back during the era of multicultural quote unquote education, which I've always felt multicultural education is people from different cultures discussing a topic, regardless of the author's race or whatever. So at that point, you know, I moved back to the Bay Area and I built this site called the Learning Bridge because I figured I can use the Internet to connect people uh, from different races and different cultures. It would sort of be like busing without the buses, you know, no political hangups, no lobbying. I, you just build it. And now people from different cultures, whether yep. it's across the world or across the park, in the case of where I taught in New York, uh, can communicate with each other. And it just shows you how naive and wrong uh, I was, because if anything, we're, our silos are more homogenized now on the internet than they were then. Um, everybody sort of thought, hey, this is a bad time to be a genocidal maniac because the transparency that the internet brings is gonna make it impossible. Well, it turns out people see things and they don't react any differently than if they hadn't seen them. And it turns out that people uh, are sort of attracted almost like a magnet to the views of those who think most similarly to them. So yeah, it really is like, full opposite world. And I think one thing we underestimated is that people on the other side that wanted to do bad things yeah. also saw the internet as an opportunity. And I find, you know, as a, what I used to think was a moderate Democrat, apparently now I'm like an extreme liberal progressive compared to today's American, American uh, range of politics, I guess. But I think that's a thing that we sort of underestimate all the time. You know, you see like the choice battle right now. I don't think most liberal Americans on the coast saw this choice battle coming again. They thought Roe v. Wade is like old news. It's a battle that's been fought. But the whole time for the last 20 or 30 years, the other side has been fighting. And we see that in gerrymandering. We see that in all these areas where we're not really yeah. capable of putting ourselves in the shoes or mindset of the other side of the political aisle. And because of that, we're caught flat-footed a lot of the time. Absolutely. I mean, I think that I, I was naive. I really thought that it would bring people together and not, not, not you know, create the tribal fighting back and forth in the polarization and people, again, seeking information that they wanted, they want to hear to, to get re, you know, sort of revalidated, reinforced uh, and where that's going. I mean, I remember, and I have talked about this a little bit, you know, in the Dean campaign, we had blog for America where Howard would get on the uh, blog post in the morning. Thousands of people would comment. I'd call one of them out and say, hey, Dave, that's a great idea. We're going to use it. We had a direct connection with with uh, our supporters and no other campaign out there really did it that way until I woke up one day and Donald Trump was doing it. And Twitter was his blog for America where he was directly, you know, putting something out there, connecting with people, them connecting, calling them out, praising them and engaging directly with them. And, you know, the technology doesn't know, the app doesn't know the the good or bad use user. Uh, it right. just, you know, and, and, and I think you're right that we not understanding that, you know, like the 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 outrage machine that they've spent 30, 40 years building and fighting and building it and making it bigger and bigger. And there's no such thing. You know, there was no effort at all uh, or even response to it. And now, 
It's it's that outrage machine. They can turn it on on critical race theory on anything, and it just it it, it just amplifies and can get picked up quickly. And we, there really is no other mechanism on on the whatever you want to call it, the sane side, pro democracy side, uh, to counter the disinfo. Yeah, I mean, one of the tricky things is you know you said the app doesn't know your politics or care really, but actually reality is a huge disadvantage on the internet and on internet right. platforms. And, and the reason for that really relates to how Trump used it. You know, birtherism um, caught on and that's why Trump focused on birtherism. It wasn't right. the other way around. So, you know, like many of us who are addicted to the dopamine hits of uh, yeah. social media, you know, we might need a syringe full, Trump might need a, a swimming pool full, but we're both sort of reacting to the same stimulus. And, you know, he tried a million messages and the one that really caught on in 2015 was birtherism. So he put the right. pedal to the metal. But that's the big advantage that people who lie have on social media, that they are not encumbered by reality or the truth. Therefore, they can test any message and hone it perfectly to what's most likely to fulfill the confirmation bias and dopamine hits of the recipient and what's more most likely to give them a good feeling when they share it. You know, Freud used to call it like the pleasure principle. And he argued that pleasure principle, which we now call like an internet dopamine hit, always, always outweighs the reality principle for people. It just feels better and emotions will always trump intellect. So both sides, of course, you know, both political parties are trying to get into your emotions, just like Madison Avenue is. The difference is, is that one group is not encumbered by truth and reality. Therefore, they can choose any message. So it's actually not a level playing field out there on the Internet. No, it's not. It, one, it's not level. And two, they've been working it. I mean, you know, building the 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 outrage machine. And there hasn't been that's what I mean. There's it's both things. It's that that, that they they can lie and, you know, put uh, disinformation out there and they don't care. And it and, they, and it and they can do it across the board and pick up anything that works and, and step and amplify it. And the, and the outrage machine then picks that up and really amplifies it. And there's no, so how do you, I mean, you know, the one thing that you talked about in the book, you know, is people's relationship with the news and the, you know, that the news in 2020 could really deflate people, but also shape how, how you engage with the news. I mean, how do, what's your advice for how, how to to counter good. this we're getting to advice this is good we promised advice we're getting advice all right america listen up turn the news off once in a while the news does not have an appropriate level in your life i'm not a shrink or a counselor speaking down to you i'm like this is more like a, an episode of scared and this, straight and this is a guy who cannot stop watching right news, by the yeah way. do what i say right. not what i do let <laughs> me right. sacrifice me People are just way too focused on the news. Um, you don't need to get news notifications busting in your pocket all day long. You're not Batman. You're not going to like fly to the scene and do something about it. Whether Manchin says something or there's a mudslide in Peru. We beat fascism uh, in World War II with one newspaper landing on our stupid day. We don't need constant reminders every second. And I think people really need to look at news as a product. Is it a valuable product? Is it a good idea if we're well-informed? Sure, but it still is a product. And the idea that we should be, we should be spending a, a big amount of our time on it is a marketing message created by those who are promoting it, you know? So 
it's valuable to be informed. It's, it's very, uh, it's not just less than valuable. It's just really a detriment to you to be over exposed to news 24 seven, especially political news. I mean, when you look at the front page of the newspapers today, it's all politics. It's this, it's not even the, the issues of politics. It's the sport of politics. And I'd argue that people are much more better served by watching a football game than they are about watching the inner wrangling of uh, details of a bill. You know, that's not what a republic democracy is about. Vote for the person. If they don't move the policies in the direction you want them to, vote for another person next time. Your job is to live your life and be a normal citizen, not to be glued to your TV set and radio and have every conversation dominated by this topic. Luckily, we've seen a pretty big drop off among, uh, you know, the big news sites and the extreme news sites even more so during 2021. But it still doesn't I don't think it still doesn't have a place, a compartmentalized place in our life in the way it should. So, so that's one thing I would do. And another thing, the best advice I think I can give people is if you feel hate and anger before you express that hate and anger, consider uh, where it's coming from and who benefits from that hate and anger. So much of our political rage is manufactured by one side or another. Uh, the caricatures we have of each other. I've never hated a person in real life as much as I hate the media caricature of a Trump voter. And yet when I've met people who are Trump voters in real life or coach little league teams with them or interacted with them, like the politics never even come up. It's like the right. millionth thing on the list of things that are important to us, but online it's the yeah. main thing. And, you know, look, if I put something complimentary about uh, Liz Cheney in my Twitter, yeah. I get silence. If I put something that attacks Matt Gates, I get a lot of retweets. And at some point we have to say, hey, this is not benefiting our society to always respond to these uh, this outrage machine, you know, and so much of it is just I feel it's so much related to the economic divide where we have so little overlap right now. You know, when I was a kid, it's like I played on the same little league team and football team with the people who were, you know, real estate empire leaders and people who uh, worked for the police department or were garbage men or worked at the local store. It's like none of us ever thought about that. You know, we were all interacting with each other. It would be impossible to create a series of lies about the other political party because I'm interacting with them every day. You know, I, had a, I have a friend whose kid was at camp this summer and she wrote, the kid wrote the mother a letter home saying what all the political uh, characterizations of all the people in, the, in, the, in their cabin were. Oh, this person is sort of a Biden uh, liberal. This person is like a Warren progressive. We have a couple Trump voters here. And it's like, these kids are like 12, man. So right. give me a break. Like you guys should be holding hands, making out and causing trouble, not worrying about this political messaging that's now soiling your childhood also, you know? So pulling back from the news, I think would be a benefit and actually maybe thinking once in a while, instead of just reacting immediately, you don't have to have a take on every single bit of news that comes over your tweet uh, stream. You know, uh, we started out uh, talking about uh, your dad and surviving the Holocaust and what his fears were. Uh, he, I know he passed away uh, in 2020, but he, uh, if I got this right, he, he lived to see Trump defeated. But we're, we're you know, looking at how he, today this threat's still out there. I, I mean, what would his counsel be? I mean, you, you know, what would... To be yeah. alert. I mean, what you know, I'm just trying to get to 
to yeah. how do you wake people up to how, you know, step away from the news, but pay attention because there's some, you know, there's this, this movement to, to yeah. take your country away. I mean, that's a very. Yeah. I mean, the stepping away from the news is for probably my, my advice. I gave that to yeah. him too. in his last year, you know, he was like a guy who went to the office and exercised every day up until the quarantine basically. And, you know, then he's 96 and it's sort of in a jail oh, wow. sentence where he's like yeah. locked in a cell with Wolf Blitzer 24 seven, you know, <laughs> and he never turned it off and he became really obsessed, overly obsessed with the right. story. But it makes sense given his past, you know, I mean, the one thing I know for sure is nothing about what's happening right now um, in the Republican Party and the continuance of the big lie and people choosing power over country and all these things. None of that would have surprised him. Uh, the whole year of 2020 leading up to the election, when I'd say these polls look good, that poll looks good. He kept saying the polls don't matter. The election result doesn't matter. When you have a person like this, they don't leave uh, peacefully. He's not going to leave on his own accord. Watch, you know, and that just kept being a, a systematic thing with us that he'd predict something. This is going all the way back to my childhood. You know, even the first Gulf War, he said, you know, watch the Iraqis are going to let the Americans go all the way to Baghdad and then they're going to fight them insurgent style in the city where they can they know the people and they know how to operate. What else can they do? And, you know, he knew that because he was an insurgent when he saw, right. fought for the partisans. So he, he would have been very unsurprised by all of this. I think the only surprise or the frustration would have been really the reaction to it. You know, the same question he kept asking me during 2020, why aren't people out in the streets? Why is this not a bigger story? This is an, right. an overt tragedy. The fact that believing in the big lie or at least giving countenance to it is like the price of admission to get into the GOP's tent. I mean, that is just remarkably dangerous. And it follows very clearly in the pattern of governments and societies that have slid away from democracy like it is happening here and yet we're spending so much time hey is uh vice president harris as much in the uh limelight as we wanted her to be i mean how is this how does those two issues compare like this is the issue you know and it's really i think it would be upsetting to him and it's upsetting to me that it's not a bigger story and that the media still seems to uh, and by media i'm referring to the mainstream media you know, still doesn't want to uh, be too aggressive in their stance towards what's happening, as if you have to be unbiased when it comes to reality versus falsehoods. That's not what bias is. You know, it's okay to be biased in favor of reality. That's the job of a journalist. Truth is the ultimate goal of the journalist. So you don't have to keep sort of pussyfooting around what's happening here and what's being done. It's a disaster. We don't need to resuscitate Chris Christie and pretend that what he did didn't happen. He was pushing for Trump the whole time. If Trump hadn't dropped his ass after he got COVID, he would have been pushing for the election change also. But now, hey, he's got a book to sell. So let's all pretend that it's all cool. And this is just part of politics as usual. Well, what we have in America right now is not usual. And people need to wake up and the media needs to do its job and focus on how urgent this threat is. What else can our listeners do both, you know, as they're looking through the news, but next week, hopefully they're unplugging, they're having conversations around the table. How can we get through next week, let alone next year, a little bit more sane? Yeah, I think, you know, like I said earlier, so much of our anger is really manufactured and it's manufactured because the internet lends itself to that. 
And it also, you know, the same clicks that were criticizing Zuckerberg for trading democracy for, you know, the media wants those clicks also. So when you think of people who are unwilling to get the vaccine, we all think of ivermectin and people like taking handfuls of horse dewormer, you know, because that's funny, weird and click worthy and shareable. But the truth is most people who aren't getting the vaccine are either scared of needles or they're afraid of some health risk that they're misinformed about. They think they might get fired if they take time off from work um, or, you know, they have peer pressure in their community. But that's the kind of stuff that just doesn't make a great story. So I would just this Thanksgiving when people are home, if they disagree with somebody around the table or they're watching TV and they're getting frustrated about something they see on the news, just to remember that what we're seeing are the extreme examples in those cases and what bonds us is much greater than what divides us. And, uh, you know, the only people who really have it truly bad on Thanksgiving are the turkeys. The rest of us are doing okay. Thanks, Dave. Uh, Dave, the author of the Next Draft newsletter and his book, Please Scream Inside Your Heart. It's now available. You can find Dave's book at pleasescream.com. And if you really want more news, and ignored the rest of his advice about that, you should sign up for his newsletter at nextraft.com. It's worth it. And fr frankly, um, you can take his advice and read his newsletter and you'll get the, you'll, you'll get some news that you should focus on uh, every day in bite size and with some humor. We'll include links uh, to all that in our show notes. Don't forget, please subscribe to That Trippy Show and leave a review on Apple or wherever you listen. And please do share this with a friend this Thanksgiving week. Uh, I, I think it, there's some really useful information. I hope more people find Dave Powell, Next Draft, and, and, and his book. Uh, they're all fabulous. The, the, the Next Draft uh, newsletter, I can't rave about enough. And the book, um, I'm about midway through it. And it is more really uh, insightful and humorous uh, about, a, a, about a lot of stuff we need to focus on and, and we can learn from. You can always send us a question to that trippy show at gmail.com or leave us a question in iTunes. See you next time. Thanks, Dave, for being on. Thanks so much for having me. It was great talking to you guys. I am Anthony Scaramucci, and you may know me from my career on Wall Street or my 11 days in the White House. They say you can't teach an old dog new tricks, but I'll tell you, if you read books, you can. I love to read, and my new podcast, Open Book, is about just that. Each book is this curated source of knowledge, which we can buy for $10 and digest in 10 hours. Together with some of the brightest minds and authors out there, I'll turn the pages on everything from history and psychology to finance and tech. You can find Open Book with Anthony Scaramucci on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there.